This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Thursday. Good to be with you today. 952-946-6205, Coming up a little bit later on the show, Linda Lagarde-Grover is going to join us. The song over Misqua Rapids is her latest novel. We'll talk to her about that. Patrick, how are you today? Doing pretty well. If you had not heard, the Beatles put out a new and final song today. Did they? Well, I saw they, they was, 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 am I crazy or was there an AI element to it? I don't think there was an AI element to this song. There, there had been people who made AI versions of this particular song, but this mm-hmm. is something that all was live, or shouldn't say live, but, uh, regular real people played on it real it's the, the beatles per se <laughs> i'm presuming i'm presuming you know paul john ringo and george are on the uh, song at some point correct yeah i mean obviously two of them are no longer with us so stuff that they recorded years ago but um you know there were also orchestral musicians added to spice things up a bit so oh nothing spices anything up more than a cello <laughs> uh it's <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's, this is, I remember when they, when we were fab, remember that, that was a song that they re they released after the fact. Um, and the, it, it was, it was actually, I think it, it, it topped the, I don't think it topped the charts. I think it was top 10 long ago when we was fab. Do you remember that song? Yeah, I think it was a George Harrison solo track initially. Yeah. And I mean, and, 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 and I believe they released it as a Beatles cut. Right, I believe they did. They might have. I'm not totally sure about that. The, you know, I'll say this. In one of the things we learned when Prince passed away is how many songs he he you know kind of didn't publish that he had written that he was out there. It it doesn't surprise me that this is still coming out. I think the thing that scares me most of all is the AI stuff that in 40 years. 50 years people are going to bring you know release a brand new complete album of Beatles tracks done by AI and that's kind of where things are going to go although I don't know in 40 years will the I think the Beatles will resonate but not near, probably not nearly as much as they do now yeah I agree with that because I will because kind of and I won't tell too much of the story but kind of the basis of this was some vocal tracks that John Lennon had recorded in the, in his final few years that they used as the bass to create these songs. So there are probably still many more of those uh, in the vault that, you know, for, there are for, for the other three as well, that, you know, you're right, that, you know, people could, if these get released, just kind of make AI versions of them based on these vocal tracks. Now, it, it, it's... it's... 
I, you know, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why the actors are, you know, still striking right now is because of, of the, the whole thing in regards to the, the AI stuff. I, and that, that, that kind of does scare me a little bit and, you know, it, <laughs> you know, give me an idea how, kind of how, you know, with me and my voice and just say it's Matt McNeil and only it's cons- a radio show with me and my voice and just say it's Matt McNeil and only it's conservative talk. That's how nefarious this is. If you never listen to Strike Force 5, they did a, it was Colbert, I think it was, on there, plugged Ryan Reynolds' voice into an AI machine and came up with an ad, and it sounded exactly like Ryan Reynolds had done it. And this is, you know, this is kind of one of the things that it was the, the scariness of the whole thing. It just was how quickly it did it and how much it sounded exactly like Ryan Reynolds. And so... Yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad the Beatles are out there. I'm, 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 I remember when they released the number ones. You remember that album? God, that was everywhere. I mean, that was that was the number one album. I think that year that that came on out. I remember seeing it everywhere. Um, but you know, it's it's the Beatles. I mean, how can you go wrong with the freaking Beatles, man? <laughs> and if you if you don't get the ch- if you do get the chance, go catch Paul or go catch Ringo. Even a nosebleed seat. Go catch them. You're seeing you know. Two of the greats that are still around making music. I mean, there are a few people that you need to kind of stop and go catch once in your life. And a, watching a Beatle perform is a good thing. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. So I'm going to start off today with, um, I'm going to read to you. Uh, we're going to spend, obviously, a good chunk of the next half hour, at least, probably, on what happened at the Minnesota Supreme Court earlier today. I'm going to read this, though. This is the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, still have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid to comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may vote of uh, two-thirds of each house to remove such disabilities. So basically, this is put into the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, after the Civil War, to basically say, you know, Confederates, you can't, you can't have fought against the United States and hold office. You can't have tried to overthrow, you know, usurp the government and hold office. But they even put a caveat in there that if two-thirds of the House and the Senate say, fine with them, you can still run. Fast forward to today. Minnesota Supreme Court Chief Justice Natalie Hudson posed a basic question Thursday at the outset of oral arguments in a petition seeking to use the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause to disqualify former President Trump from the 2024 Minnesota ballot. If the court's justices agree that they have the ability to bar Trump, should we, is the question that concerns me most, the chief said. She raised the prospect of chaos if 50 state courts decide differently on Trump's eligibility. So uh, should we do it, she asked. Well, did he violate the third, the, 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 um, part three of the 14th Amendment? Yeah, he did. And can we just, can we just, nothing angers me more than highly intelligent people that can see with their own eyes. Yep. He spurred an insurrection and sit there and say, well, I got to work my hardest to make sure I give him some excuse. No, 
he basically engaged in an insurrection. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says he should not be able to run for office. Yesterday with Jeff Stein, we talked extensively about the fact that elections are run through the states. The states get to decide what's on their ballots because this is how federal elections work. The states choose the senators, the states choose the House reps, and then when it comes to the president of the United States, the states choose the electors, the electors meet, and they elect the president of the United States. That's how it works. So, and you may not like that, but that's how it works. It's a state's issue, which means, yeah, this is why you're on the Minnesota Supreme Court. This is, you got to make, you got time to put on the, the big girl and big boy pants up there, guys, and make some freaking choices. And stop sitting there, I don't know, there's some people who are going to get upset with me if I do this. It's not about you. It's about him. What did he do? This is very plain and simple. He, he, in, he engaged in an insurrection to overthrow the government of the United States. Hence, he shouldn't be on the ballot. And I, once again, we talked yesterday about the process. So say that Minnesota take, get, goes to the Supreme Court and, the, and they say he can't be on the ballot. The Supreme Court says, well, the states can make the decision on this. You, yeah, that's exactly it. That's what the, you know, that's kind of the whole thing. The third, the, 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 the section three of the 14th amendment basically says the, the states can choose whether or not someone can be on the ballot and using section three of the 14th amendment as the justification is completely within your rights because that's why it's there. And sure. Will the red states do it? Of course not. The red states, of course not, will 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 not do engage that. But I just, I'm sorry. I I really kind of what I saw, what I heard from this when I read the the synopsis of what was going on, it felt like a lot of like, how do we get out of this? As opposed to, all right, let's let's evaluate this and go from there. The question went to Ronald Fine, lawyer for the bipartisan coalition, including the national nonprofit Free Speech for People, former Secretary of State Joan Groh, and former Supreme Court Justice Paul H. Anderson. Hudson noted that prior cases on ballot disqualification gave mixed guidance on the issue. Doesn't that suggest we should use caution and some judicial restraint and maintain the status quo, she asked. Sure, I mean, basically, shouldn't we allow someone who engaged in an insurrection to be on the ballot? Come on, man. Let's give them, if they do it a second time, then we'll get our stern wagon finger out and tell them they better not do it again. God. Fine counted that there is ample authority to disqualify Trump and that the constitutional directive to the court is that it should disqualify Trump. And this is, because there, there, there's a lot of, with the Minnesota Supreme Court, there was a lot of, trying to muddy up the waters. No, this is a pretty clear-cut case. He engaged in an insurrection against the government. He was he threw a temper tantrum because he got his ass handed to him in 2020 and basically was willing to try to get his own vice president killed to try to basically win the election of 2020 through any means necessary. Heck, I mean, how many of his former Cabinet members have said he was a little freaking, you know, Mussolini in there, man. 
The questioning from the bench was the first peak of the justices might be thinking on the petition seeking to bar Trump from the Minnesota ballot based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The insurrection cause, uh, clause prohibits former officers from holding office again if they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to those who did. In a 20-minute session, the, or excuse me, 20 minutes, 70-minute session, the court heard from four attorneys representing the coalition, Secretary of State Steve Simon, Trump, his campaign, and the state GOP. When the session wrapped, Hudson comment, commended the lawyers for their arguments and said that the court would decide in due course what, which means whatever it wants. Uh, the court knows that the time is cri- uh, critical, arguing briefly for Simon, Assistant Attorney General Nathan uh, Hearthstone, Hartshorn took no position on Trump's eligibility, but asked the court to rule. And once again, we should make sure we mention this. The Secretary of State was basically only there to say, I don't care how you rule. You just need a rule and you need to rule quickly because we got primaries coming up here. The court, ta- um, uh, basically, so he took no position on Trump's eligibility, but asked the court to rule no later than January 5th so county election officials have time to prepare for the presidential primary before absentee voting begins on January 19th. Hudson noted to Hartshorn that friend of the court briefs filed in the case suggests that Minnesota law gives Simon's office an awful lot of power to determine who is qualified and not qualified. Once again, muddying the waters, passing the buck. Should we be concerned about that? Hartshorn countered that Simon's position is he doesn't have the authority to make that decision. Hudson asked, are you saying if you get an order from us, you're going to comply with that? Absolutely, Hartshorn then replied. So basically what he's saying is this. He's not going to make the decision on his own. He's going to let the courts decide this, and then he'll abide by whatever the court says. At the beginning of the remarks, each lawyer spoke for three uh, uninterrupted minutes before questions began. Joining Hudson on the bench in a full courtroom were Justices uh, G. Barry Anderson, Ann McKeague, Gordon Moore, Paul Thiessen, Justices Margaret uh, Chutich, and Carl uh, uh, Procassini recuse themselves for unstated reasons, but presumably Charles Nowen, a lawyer for the petitioners, is tied to the justices' election campaign. So so two of them recuse themselves. So there you have one, two, three, four, five total justices. There's not going to be a tie. So there's that. Hudson asked the most uh, questions, followed by Thiessen and Anderson. The subjects range from whether Congress must act to disqualify Trump what defines an insurrection, whether the court has the authority to ban Trump, and if the ruling would be breaking new ground. Moore and McKeague asked fewer but more precise questions. Moore asked Nicholas Nelson, the attorney for Trump in his campaign, what the petitioners would have to prove to show Trump had engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Nelson said January 6, 2021 didn't qualify. <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> Hang Mike what again? I can't remember. What was the whole thing you were guys doing? Yeah, <sighs> He said some serious crime and violence took place, but nothing on the scale or scope of an insurrection. You are trying to stop the counting of the ballots from the states. You are trying to stop the official counting of the ballots from the states. What do you mean nothing in scale or scope of insurrection? It wasn't like they were the, the Congress was meeting to talk about a new parks bill. It wasn't like the Congress was meeting to talk about new energy standards or aid to Ukraine or Israel. No, it was meeting to basically verify the election. And you guys were trying to stop it. That is a textbook definition of an insurrection. Textbook definition of an insurrection. 
tell you what, let's take a break. Come on back. More on this. A good chunk of this hour, I imagine, I'm going to be talking about this. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Russell Voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. Going back to the hearing today on whether or not Trump should be on the ballot. And once again, just it, it to me, I mean, once again, I want to repeat what this is what the lawyer for Trump said and his campaign. He said January 6th didn't qualify as an insurrection. He said some serious crime and violence took place, but nothing on the scale or scope of an insurrection. What he's purposely leaving out is why the mob, the mob was pointed to the Capitol by the president and his allies on that morning. Go get them. And then we also have to factor in what was going on in the Capitol at that point. It was the counting of the ballots. You, you know, it's really easy to try to make it sound like, oh, well, they just stormed the gift shop at the Smithsonian. That's not what they did. They stormed the U.S. Capitol to try to stop, to try to stop the insurrection or try to stop the, 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 the insurrection, tried to stop the, the counting of the, the, the electoral college. I mean, this was a textbook insurrection. It was a textbook insurrection. Trump himself was trying to turn a secret, a secret service vehicle around and get back to the Capitol because he knew he had one chance at this. And they refused to take him over there because they could not keep him safe. Unbelievable. Yet, you know, once again, it's standard Republicans leave out 90% of the story and then act like you're innocent. Moore asked, the Supreme Court Justice Moore asked whether the bipartisan House impeachment of Trump should bear a court's rulings. Neeson said that that does, then the sentence acquittal should also be factored in. McKeague asked whether the questions of definition of Trump's participation weighed in factor of the petitioner's request for the evidentiary hearing to determine the answers. Nelson's didn't know, didn't answer directly. Um, so basically, you know, they're trying to they're trying to make it seem as vague as possible of Trump's responsibility for calling the crowd to be there on January 6th, coming out there to encourage them to storm the Capitol and pointing at the Capitol and saying, paraphrasing, go get them. To find the petitioner's lawyer, McKeague asked whether there was a difference between someone holding office and putting his name on a ballot. Thiessen said he too was troubled by the timing. Is Trump ineligible to be on the ballot because, or ineligible to hold office? Fine said Trump is disqualified from being on the ballot unless both houses of Congress grant him amnesty by two-thirds votes. I mean, this is, like I said, these are intelligent people almost intentionally dumbing this down. It's laid out very clearly in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that if you participate in an insurrection, which Trump did, that you are barred from running for office, which he should be. And the only exception to that is if you get two-thirds vote uh, in the House and the Senate. See, that's where the Congress weighs in. If Congress was to say, okay, we're going to have a vote here to allow him to run, so there's no question, they're not doing that, though. Fine said Trump is disqualified from being on the ballot unless both houses of Congress grant him immunity by two-thirds votes. He's also argued that Section 3 is a direct prohibition of office holding for those who aid insurrections. One of Nelson's many uh, main arguments was that the issue of Trump's ballot eligibility is a political, not judicial question. We think it's an, that's an important part of the separation of powers. Okay, stop. Yes, there is a political element to this. He is the former president from one of the political parties. 
but then don't lean on the crutch of, oh, it's a political hit job because the reality is the insurrection, we could call that political too. It was, you know, a bunch of Republicans trying to overturn a legitimate election that elected a Democrat. The reality is this. This is cut and dry. Remove the political parties. Trump engaged in an insurrection. Section 3, 14th Amendment. It's pretty clear. Like I said, I can't stand the fact that these are people who are, are supposedly smarter than me, and they almost are going out of their way to try to muddy up the waters here. We think it's an important part of the separation of powers. Uh, uh, Nelson's main point was the Constitution does not say the states have a role in determining who's eligible to be president. No, Nelson, but it does say who has the eligibility to be on your own ballot in any given state. I mean, just because, I mean, once again, I'm going to point to the election of 1860. The election of 1860, Lincoln wasn't even on a lot of the ballots in the South. Yet he still won the presidency. Just because Minnesota does not have him on the ballot doesn't mean he can't win the presidency. It just means he's not going to be eligible to be voted for in Minnesota on the ballot. It's just that simple. Justice Anderson asked Nelson whether he agreed the court is in uncharted territory. Nelson didn't directly answer the question, but said the courts should dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction or determine if it falls on the merits. To read LeBeau, the attorney for the state GOP, Thiessen asked whether the, his position would be different in a general election rather than a primary. The state GOP argued that blocking Trump violates the First Amendment right of association. But once again, that's the First Amendment that was in there. We put the thir- Section 3 of the 14th Amendment into the Constitution to basically say, you know, oh, by the way, if you try to overthrow the government of the United States, you can't run for office again. So to fall back on the First Amendment when clearly the, the th- Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was put in there after the fact because we had to address this issue is ignoring the fact that we had to put it in there to address this issue. <laughs> uh, LeBeau said that, the pri- that in primaries, the parties choose who will be their standard bearers. Multiple times, the justice has asked whether the GOP put someone on the ballot who isn't a natural-born U.S. citizen or is under the age of 35, both presidential qualifications for the U.S. Constitution. LeBeau said those facts aren't in dispute here and are, are easier to discern. But it, you want to know the truth is, you could make an I mean, I, I, you know, are they really LeBeau? Let me ask you this. Your argument is, you're, you're, you say that he, he, we're violating Trump's First Amendment right of association. So say you have some guy from Peru who the Republicans fall in love with, who's 26 years old. Two disqualifications. Could, I mean, under your argument, aren't you in basically making the same argument that basically through the First Amendment, even though he, there are laws that say you have to be an American citizen, you have to be over a certain age to run for president, because if, if we block him, it would violate his First Amendment right of association, we have to put him on the ballot. So it is actually on point. It just you didn't want to answer that because, well, then you can say, yeah, we, we basically have the ability to pull people off ballots. Because that, that seems to me, once again, the Republicans' point of view, whether it was the Trump lawyer or the, 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 the GOP lawyer, was to basically not acknowledge the fact that you could basically have an argument to pull a candidate off a ballot if you needed to. And if, because if you did, regardless of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, well, that kind of 
sets up Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, Hudson persisted. I would agree it's harder to determine if someone engaged in an insurrection than whether someone is 35. That goes to petitioner's suggestion we should have an evidentiary hearing, the chief said. LeBeau also raised the prospect of 50 states deciding the Trump ballot issue indifferently. That doesn't matter. You're only concerned about Minnesota. You, the Minnesota Supreme Court is not worried about what Iowa does, or at least they shouldn't be. So your your entire argument, that's just that's for his courtroom showboating. All 50 states could have a different time. Well, it doesn't matter. We're only concerned about one state, Minnesota, at this point. So it doesn't matter what other states are doing. This is about what Minnesota is doing. <sighs> Hudson responded, that's why we have the U.S. Supreme Court, which is where this probably should be decided. Thiessen asked LeBeau if it's correct that there is no controlling legal authority defining insurrection or rebellion. LeBeau said that's correct and why Congress would need to act to exclude someone from the ballot. But once again, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not say Congress has to enact that. All it can say is basically what the 13th, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says is if you engage in an insurrection, which Trump clearly did, then you're out. The only thing that the Congress can weigh in on is if two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate vote to keep him, you know, allow him to run, then he can run. Hudson said, insurrection kind, kind of might be the eye of the beholder, and it depends on who's doing the beholding. No, this is not. This is not. Okay. Donald Trump called the crowd there. His whole campaign called the crowd there. All of his lackeys under the orders of Trump pulled all these people there on January 6th, specifically on January 6th, the morning of January 6th. He then pointed to the U.S. Capitol, told the mob to go get them. As at the Capitol, the House and Senate were trying to count the Electoral College votes. Once again, the Congress was not taking up a bill on affordable housing. The, the Congress was not taking up a bill on border security. The Congress was not taking a bill up on funding the military. The Congress was actually in the act of trying to validate the election of 2020. That has to be a part of the factor here because you have to remove that for this just to be a bunch of mingling idiots whacking cops with hockey sticks. And it just, it's, this is not, this is, once again, this is the, 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 you have to intentionally try to muck up the waters here to turn what Trump did on January 6th into, we, we don't know. How am I sounding more judicial than the freaking Minnesota Supreme Court? How in the hell is this trained chimp sounding more judicial than the Minnesota Supreme Court. In an email before the hearing, retired Justice Paul Anderson said he would not be attending. I do not need to be make my being a party that more evident by my appearance in the courtroom. He said, adding that in an email, he also believes this won't be the last word. This issue will be appealed and decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. And I guarantee it will be, regardless of how the ruling falls down. You have a lot of very intelligent people being intentionally ignorant. Once again, <clears throat> for everyone with the PH, <laughs> almost went there. PH freaking D's, okay? Every one of you with your PhDs, all right? Listen. Donald Trump called all the, well, first of all, we know. That from the beginning of the election, Donald Trump was going to call that there was fraud, which there wasn't. 
And he took them to court repeatedly to try to prove fraud, which he couldn't. And they even went out of the way to ask some states like Georgia to find votes to overturn the election, which they didn't. And they're currently prosecuting him for in Georgia. Then came the fake electors idea which would be to create a bunch of fake electors to muck up the system and try to get this thrown to the U.S. House of Representatives where there was a 26 to 24 majority for Republican states over Democratic states. Henceforth, the House of Representatives could have awarded the presidency to Trump, not won it. But that blew up in their face because, frankly, there is, there is nothing saying that anyone in Congress has to take a secondary group of electoral college officials seriously. So then Trump and the rest of his crew in his campaign called this ravenous mob of traitorous jackasses, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, racist bigots, called them all to the Capitol, specifically on the morning of January 6th. Why? Because that was the day the Congress was going to count to determine the election. And all it is is a ceremonial thing. He tried to pressure his vice president to basically create new law and override the voting public, which the vice president didn't do. So when it was came down to it, the entire point was to get that angry mob, which he called there, which he riled up. And when he pointed to the Capitol and said, go get them, they did. And they attacked cops and they, they, they threatened to kill the vice president and the speaker of the house. They vandalized the Capitol building and then they spread their own feces all over the building. And it was only when Maryland and Virginia, which at that time had a Republican governor in Maryland and a Democratic governor in Virginia, basically called up their National Guards and sent them in, that Trump then, after he tried to grab the steering wheel of a Secret Service vehicle and turn it around so he could lead his pathetic army of morons into the Capitol and fail because the Secret Service said, not a chance on the planet, sir. It was only then when the National Guards were getting ready to go in there and really clean house that he, hello, I love you. It's time to go home. It was an insurrection. And it annoys me that me, an unqualified judicial voice, can very clearly paint this out that this was an insurrection. And under that argument, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment clearly applies. Donald Trump should not be on the ballot. Now, once again, as we discussed with with Stein yesterday, doesn't mean every state would remove him from the ballot. It does mean, though, that every state has the right to remove him from the ballot if they so choose because he was a traitorous bastard. I rest my case. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Sorry for almost swearing. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Take a break. It's Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Hi, this is Frank Brown, owner of Minuteman Press Uptown, Minnesota's only minority-owned union printing company. And I have big news. We've moved. Our new building in North... AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. No, I'm, I got, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a, a, 
when I was reading through this, as a matter of fact, I got it, you know, I, I forgot a book, but I was, I was spending a lot of time re- trying to wait for this because um, a lot of the news on this didn't even, you know, get posted until like 2, 2.30, 2.30 this afternoon. And I was reading through this. And I kept saying to myself, wait a second here. I can easily make an argument that this was an insurrection. Because what was going on in the building at the time? It wasn't like it wasn't like there was no one in there and they were just waxing the floors. I mean, it was there. It was the actual, you know, the counting of the ballots. And so, yeah, uh, to say the least, I I am not I am not happy. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Um, some other news, I, and two national stories I want to get to. And one is an interesting debate that exploded last night on George Santos and the removing the, the, the vote to remove George Santos, which by the way, was coordinated. The, the New York Republicans wanted him gone. Now I want to make sure we understand he had no chance of getting thrown out of, of the Congress. He didn't because to do that would have required two thirds majority to pass, um, there was there was more than enough Republicans, 182 Republicans, to basically prevent them from being a, a two-thirds majority on that happening. Plus, there was about 19 people who voted president, which I think that that kind of factors into losing the the numbers. Anyway, he, there was no chance he was going to 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 get you know thrown out of Congress. But it was surprising that 31 Democrats voted to 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 keep there that that he was to stay in Congress. I mean, I if I was a congressperson, this is a no-brainer. Vote to get him out. He's he is he is a he's a pretty horrible person. I loved his volleyball career. I mean, who couldn't who who doesn't remember how how great in quality he was playing volleyball. But um yeah, he's he's a horrible person. He's been charged with 23 felony counts, including wire fraud, credit fraud, credit card fraud, and identity theft. He's faced calls for his resignation since he took office when journalists revealed he'd fabricated most of his background and qualifications to get elected. Raskin, a prominent progressive, said he was against the resolution because I'm a Constitution guy. Okay. Santos has not been criminally convicted yet of the offenses cited in the resolution, nor has been found guilty of ethic offenses in the House internal process. The lawmaker, a longtime constitutional law professor and attorney, told Axios. Uh, he noted that the House had expelled only five people in its history, three for fighting against the U.S. government in the Civil War. You know, that's, that's you know, yeah, kind of a no-brainer. Uh, the other two after they were convicted of criminal offenses. He said he would certainly vote to expel Santos as he's found guilty in either investigation. I can think of four or five Democratic members or the Republicans would like to expel without a conviction or adverse ethics findings, he told Axios. And we can't abandon due process and the law, rule of law in the House of Representatives. Several other progressives voted against the resolution, including Representatives Zoe Lofgren of California, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, Morgan McGravy, Democrat of Kentucky, Representative Bob Menendez Jr., Democrat of New Jersey, whose father, Goldbar Bob Menendez. <laughs> Gold. What, what are you trying to rob the Monopoly board? What are you, gold bars? <laughs> He's refused to resign. A Republican, Representative Anthony Diaspizito of New York, filed the expulsion resolution as leader of the GOP group of GOP lawmakers advocating for Santos's ouster. Santos is running for re-election in 2024. His criminal trial is scheduled to begin in mid-September, less than two months before the election. Um... 
All right. You want to know the truth is, I, uh, Jamie Raskin, now there's a dude that's, you know, a thousand times smarter than I'll ever be. Jamie Raskin is an incredibly intelligent individual, and his arguments, although I don't agree with them, I, I respect them. And he and he does make a point that you need to give people the right of due process. There's a lot of people who still to this date scream about Al Franken, that he didn't get due process, that he was forced out without being able to even defend himself, which... You know, he wanted to do so. And I, you know, I'm going to be blunt. I mean, regardless of what it is, I mean, the person should have the right to defend themselves if there's an allegation made against them. So, you know, and, and you know, I think this is the eternal problem of, of Republicans versus Democrats. Republicans could have someone who murdered 16 Boy Scouts and they'd say, you know, until the court has gone through the entire appeal process, we really can't act. Meanwhile, if someone, you know, you know, you think someone who is, you know, a vegan basically had some a, a glass of milk one day. They're basically like, well, we don't need any evidence. They need to go immediately because we have to show that we are better. That sort of thing. So, you know, as always, I think the middle ground, there's something in the middle there. Raskin makes a valid point. You know, let this go to trial. But if I may make the obvious point here. And something all Democrats should feel pretty good about, especially if you're in the state of New York. Keeping him in there, I mean, if you got rid of him last night, if you got rid of him last night, they, they, they would be able to, the Republicans of New York would be able to basically bury him, get past him, and put on a pretty effective, we've moved past Santos. Look at As a matter of fact, they'd probably run ads saying, see, we have so much integrity, we even held George Santos accountable. That's, you know, that's, that would be, give them an out. What you do now <laughs> is give them a real hoot of a time because, you know, just remember, remember all those ads for, you know, it, let's talk about, you know, you know, pick a Democrat, Dean Phillips, Dean Phillips, who hangs out with Nancy Pelosi and her San Francisco values. I mean, for goodness sakes, it's so easy with George Santos. <laughs> he stood by volleyball George. You know, come on. <laughs> and that's a lot of stink that a lot of Republicans are not going to be able to wipe off. That is a lot of stink that a lot of Republicans are just not going to be able to wipe off. And I guarantee you they're going to be hoping for a quick trial and a quick verdict in September that they can basically get get him off the ballot and get him done. But there's going my guess is going to be is that Santos is you know Santos is a is a weenie. I mean he really is. And he's probably going to take a plea deal. That what will happen is he'll have a plea deal and he'll he'll do, will he take one for the team? I don't know. I mean, he's the kind of guy that will wait. What's the date of his trial here? It's September. Oh, um, mid-September. So I would imagine, so say it's the 15th of September of next year. My guess is going to be like the 12th of September. Santos will take a plea deal just at the very end and resign his position and the, there'll be a frantic effort to for the Republicans to say, now we're moving past him, but that might not be enough time. I just don't, I, I think he'll he'll take a plea deal, admit guilt, not serve time, 
and then have to resign his seat because he pled guilty. And that will be the end of the George Santos. Although I guarantee you, we'll, we'll hear from him again. I mean, it's, we have Olympic volleyball next year. I mean, it's, you know, we'll hopefully see the man in Paris, but (laughs) he looks like a mango. So I don't, I don't know exactly what 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 position he plays in volleyball, but the, a lot of those volleyball guys are real tall and whisper thin. I, I you know and, and, and strong, so I don't I don't know which position he's going to play there. But uh, water boy, I don't know. But I I will I will say this. I think I understand why some people voted against him. I would say him staying there is a gift that keeps on giving for the Democrats because. Especially New York, where the republic the Republicans out there, mainly due to the insanely inept and bad Democratic Party leadership in the state of New York, have been able to make inroads in that state. You know, an absolute idiot can take George Santos and cripple the Republican Party in the state of New York. All you have to just go back to the 2022 election, find any time that any of these guys were with him. And here they are endorsing George Santos and they'll get upset and they'll get mad and they'll scream and they're bellow. But the reality is they ain't going to get away with it. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I would like to see this guy gone, but at the same time, I can see the, there is indeed great value and George Santos staying in the U.S. Congress. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Let's take a break, come back. I'll give you an update on the Trump boys in court in New York. It's not going well for them. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. So you know how bad things went for the Trump boys today? Uh, Apparently the end, and this was just finished up not that long ago, the end of this whole thing was Trump's lawyers attacking Allison Greenfield, who is um, the, um, um, you know, this is the the judge's law clerk who he has had conversations with during the trial, and they're accusing of giving him guidance and saying that that's not what her, her job is. And, and and so they're trying to throw a fit right now. So because I mean because you'll get the point here in a second. Let me let me step back there for a quick second. My my degree is in business from William Penn. Go and fight in Mad Quakers. Um, I I I got a business degree, and one of the things that they they teach you, as a matter of fact, early on in the business program, is the structure, the corporate structure of executives and employees and all that stuff and what's the role everyone plays within a company. It's pretty basic 101 business stuff. Both Don Trump Jr. and Eric Trump were... (laughs) I don't do him justice, do I? Uh, They were both listed as executive vice presidents, which means basically pretty much in charge. Eric is a little bit more on the line here because he was kind of listed as the day-to-day operations guy. Don Trump Jr., though, signed off on plenty of things, too. We live in an age where there's generally two kinds of executives. There are the traditional corporate executives who bust their buns. Um, They're working, you know, they don't take off half days on Friday in summer. They're working a good chunk of the Saturday, and they work half of their Sunday. 
they are taking a lot of their vacations are working vacations that they're dragging their family on because they've got a fairly important role within a large corporation and they're there. The other side of it are the people that are out there who basically just use the company as their own personal checkbook, you know, go constantly on vacation. They're golfing most days. They don't run the thing. And we've had multiple cases where, where businesses go to court because of mismanagement. And generally, the businesses that that happens to are not the businesses where the executives are working really hard and taking the business seriously. They're pretty much well-run businesses. Almost all the time, it's where the moron crew has been put in charge and the selfish moron crew who basically sit there and spend half their time talking about the new car I got to go take my executive parking spot. I'm like, God, it's amazing. I mean, I, I got I got the upgrades you need because you need to have the upgrades. Oh my God. <laughs> they're the ones who, you know, will show up for work for 20 minutes and then disappear and they're at a golf course. They're the ones that will be sh- scheduled to work and they're actually on a vacation someplace saying, I'm reachable. You can contact me when you can't really contact them. They're the kind of people that basically spend their time trying to impress their buddies. Those are the executives that get their companies into trouble. Let me get back to Don Jr. and Eric, who fall seem to fall into that category. Because if you're an executive vice president, there is one thing you can't say and get away with it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Ernest goes to the executive board. Uh, I don't know. That was a lot of their testimony today. That was a lot of their testimony. Was was oh, how did you not know that the financial statements were horribly wrong? I, I don't know. They just gave me them, told me to sign them. That was all I did. Because all these documents, all these things have their signature on there. So there is there is three courses of action that these these clowns have. Course one is plead the fifth and, you know, you know, say, I'm not going to incriminate myself, which, you know, that doesn't do too well. Um, admit your guilt saying, I'm sorry, I should have done my due diligence. I wasn't paying attention. That's on me. Or go down the, I, I trusted the CFO. I trusted the accountants. I trusted them. It was particularly bad with Eric, and I'm I'm paraphrasing this a little bit, you know, so just but it was particularly Eric, they caught him a few times saying, Well, no, you knew exactly what was in these reports. You were we have emails that say you were pretty much keen and aware of what was going on here, and yet you still signed off on these fraudulent financial reports consistently. I don't know. It, it, it was not a good day. This is why, by the way, once again, why at the end of the day, the Trump lawyers were trying to attack the judge's court clerk because they basically got dismantled today. And as a matter of fact, one guy even said, I mean, this is, this is the, the, uh, the testimony today. Your, this is your senior executive vice presidents saying they had that people would bring financial documents to them. They didn't even look at them. They didn't do their due diligence. And okay, once again, I understand they might not be able to sit down there, but they're a senior executive. They'll have a team. Give me the rundown. You look at these things. Tell me if there's any problems. Oh my gosh, you got to believe this. Your dad has put down some really bad numbers. These are wrong. 
They, they're not saying that. They, I just trusted him. I didn't do my due diligence. You cannot do that. You cannot do that and expect to get away with it. And this is why, before this trial even started, the judge had already ruled that these guys were guilty. And once again, we're only in the penalty stage. But Don Jr. and Eric just sitting there going, I don't know. I, I didn't know it was it. The financial reports as the senior executive vice presidents. Well, that's a bad strategy. Hour two up next. Oh, it's okay. I like the other song too, man. <laughs> it is the Matt McGill Show, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. By the way, coming up here in a little bit, Linda Lagarde Grover is going to join us. A song over Misqua Rapids, uh, her latest novel. We'll talk to her about that, character development, all that good stuff uh, coming up here in just a little bit. Uh, did you ever eat at Stock and Spade, Patrick? I had heard about it, and I meant to try it, but I did not get there. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, and it, and it was actually, I mean, kind of, it was kind of Minneapolis was becoming this epicenter of of really good plant-based restaurants, which was really good. Uh, Stock and Spade, a plant-based chain restaurant, Minneapolis-based steel brands, announced the immediate closure of all three of its Twin Cities locations. The three locations at Dino Wyzetta, Minneapolis's North Loop, the restaurant said in a statement on Wednesday, it has experienced the unpredictable landscape of the plant-based meat and dairy alternatives industry, stating that is the reason of the sudden closures. Their statement here. We are sorry to share that the difficult decision has been made to close all three stock and spade restaurants effective November 1. We started Stock and Spade with a mission to provide delicious plant-based foods or familiar favorites you could feel great about eating. Over the past couple of years, we've experienced firsthand the unpredictable landscape of the plant-based meat and dairy alternatives industry, which has made us lead us to this hard choice. We cannot thank you enough for supporting our mission and have loved getting to know you as our neighbors. We will miss you. Sincerely, Team Stock and Spade. The restaurant concept from the Steel Smiley, CEO of the YZ-based Crispin Green, first opened its YZ location in 2021. It's a dining occasion 2022 North Loop restaurant followed September 2022. So one of those locations was not even, was just barely a year old. Um, So yeah, it's unfortunate. And I don't quite know from what they're alluding to. And I I can't, I mean, I don't know if this is a supply issue that there's just not that because this has really gone nuts. I mean, there, there's a lot of people that are doing this plant-based food. Y- y- have you done the Impossible Burger? Patrick, have you done the Impossible Burger over at Burger King? I have. I think it's actually pretty good. It's not, it's not pretty. It's really good. I got, um, there was, uh, at the grocery store, there were some plant-based hamburger patties. I got those. Those were freaking delicious. Just absolutely delicious. You know, it. I don't know. So I don't know if this is a supply issue or is this a cost issue or is it a little bit of both? I will say, and this is one of the things, Patrick, that when when Gene and I had kids, we basically made the decision that we were going to feed our kids fresh fruit and fresh vegetables as often as we could and try to stay away from as much of the pre-processed foods as we could. I feel now that my kids are 22, 19, and 16, that I feel as if we did a pretty good job because they weren't sick that often. But it cost us. I mean, that was... I, you know, if you, I mean, 
if you were just doing pre-processed stuff, you know, mac and cheese, you know, pans, lasagna, stuff like this, you can get out of the grocery store a lot cheaper than you can if you got fresh fruit and vegetables, meats and stuff like that, because that's just, it's, it costs more, especially the fruit and vegetables. And it's and it's not a big surprise when you look at the 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 you know, those latest studies out there that say you know the obesity rates in the United States are going crazy. It's an ins, it's insanely cheaper. You know you can go to like a Walmart and get a you know five gallon tub of cheese balls and you know four gallons of Mountain Dew for like you know three or four dollars. You know you know, if you want to go get you know a, a thing of broccoli and a, a tin of blueberries, it costs you three times as much. It, it's not a surprise what we have this issue, but it just, uh, you know, it's it, it'd be interesting to get a little bit more information on this in this case, whether it was a supply issue, whether just so many people are starting to offer the product that enough, no, not enough people are, per, you know, are, um, you know, putting the product out. So it becomes more difficult or and or is it a cost issue that it just it costs so much money to get these things? And if they're pricing people out of the market and you're shutting down, you're shutting down if that's the case. And I, like I said, I don't know if that's the case or not. But if that was the case, you're getting so expensive that you're shutting down restaurants in Edina, YZ, in the North Loop. Okay. Yeah, your costs might be getting out of line. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. So a little bit of a update here on a story we talked about before. And uh, Patrick, you said this is Max Halperin. Uh, there's, uh, the, um, uh, the, you know, it, it covers news here in town, uh, retired computer science gabbler and election geekery. He likes, he likes to write about politics. He had, uh, has an update on, there's a judge up in Mille Lacs County, correct? That's right. And what did he do exactly? Do you remember? This was a few weeks ago and he told a couple of, uh, people at sentencing, you cannot vote. I am taking your voting rights away. That is in violation of your court terms if you try to vote. Well, and, and it was news to everyone else because the Minnesota House and Senate and the governor just passed a bill saying that if they basically they, they basically can vote again, felons can vote again. You know, that that is once they they're 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 done, they can vote again. So this guy basically said, I don't care what the state says. I'm going to do this. I'm the county judge. Yes. Well, I don't know if he added that last part. (laughs) It would be pretty remarkable if he did. And believable, frankly. The Mille Lacs County judge. So Max Halperin uh, has this story. uh, This is the order in regards to the forbidding of two people that now have the right to vote from being able to vote. It is hereby order the petitioner for writs of prohibition are granted. Uh, this is by Chief Judge of the Court, uh, Susan Siegel. Key paragraphs here. The final question is whether the district's court order is unauthorized by law. Petitioners in the Attorney General argue the district court exceeded its lawful authority by independently raising and re- deciding an issue involving the constitutionality of a statute without the issue being raised by a party, without giving the parties notice and an opportunity to be heard. So once again, they were not in front of this court because of voting issues. They were in front of this court for other issues. This judge, this wacky, crazy, out of control, legislating from the bench judge decided, i tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> Get those two boys. Uh, something of that nature. 
Uh, the argue that the court district violated the par- principle of party presentation would recognize that the parties pra- ra- raise the issues that matter to them and courts perform the role of neutral arbitrator and should not look for wrongs to right, but wait for cases to come to them. That's green law versus the United States. Uh, we also agree. So basically there is court precedent on, you know, Johnny clown car over here from Lax County, basically trying to, trying to do this. Nothing in Minnesota uh, R criminal P 27.03 authorizes a district judge to issue a supplemental sentencing order after a sentencing hearing and without prior notice of the parties. The supplemental sentencing order also appears to exceed the court district's statutory sentencing authority. The judicial branch has no inherent authority to impose terms or conditions of sentencing for a criminal act. State versus uh, Osterloh. From 1978, the legislature grants district courts the authorities to sentence a defendant to imprisonment to a stay of execution or importance of a sentence and place the defendant on probation and determine the conditions of the probation. Minnesota Statute 609-10, Subsector 1A, 135-202, and another court case from 2004. But a sua sponte supplemental sentencing order declaring a legislative act unconstitutional is outside the sentencing authority granted to district courts by the legislature. Listen here, you idiot judge. Yeah, that's right. Monkey boy here. Stop it. Stop it. Come on, man. I get it. Did you did you get a lot of high fives at the Republican Party meeting when you did that? Did you get a lot of high fives? Dude, if you're at the point where you're pulling off stuff like this, resign. You're too old, and I'm going to guess, and I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, senile, to be a judge. Needless to say, yeah. (laughs) That's that's, that's a judicial version of, shut up. That's basically what they told the guy from Mille Lacs County, 952-946-6205, Speaking of of things, uh, (laughs) I don't know a good segue here. Rochester, Minnesota. A lawsuit's been filed in Olmstead County District Court by Casey McGregor challenging the Rochester Public Schools referendum question. The referendum question is asking for voters to approve A $10.15 million annually for 10 years. If approved, it would raise the average Rochester homeowner's yearly taxes by $135. McGregor, who is part of the Say No to the Tax Man group, is advocating against the passing of this referendum, saying the question itself is invalid. The school district is calling this referendum the 2023 Capital Projects Technology Levy Referendum, which McGregor argues is invalid by state statute. Okay. According to the lawsuit, McGregor says the referendum is not clear about what taxpayer dollars will be used for and says the capital project portion of the referendum is not clearly defined, which could mislead voters. The lawsuit goes on to claim that $7 million or 70% of the referendum would go to the general fund instead of being used for technology updates. McGregor is asking for the question to be struck from the ballot due to it being invalid. By the way, I should mention this is less than a week away. Uh, RPS responded to the lawsuit saying in a statement, the district engaged local counsel to ensure that the ballot question was drafted to meet all legal requirements. We look forward to the election and await the voters' decision. Election day referendum is for next Tuesday, the 7th of November. Uh, I think you, if you had a legitimate argument to try to stop this, 
then you would have probably put it out more than and what what day was this? I think this this was story was today. Maybe it was yesterday they filed this. So less than a week out. This is a hail mary to try to say you know and and you know I think we're learning from the Speaker Johnson in the U.S. House. There's a lot of Republicans. Some people say I don't know the law. <laughs> Let me tell you what I do know though. I know blah 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 blah. And like this this Malax County lawyer or judge rather not lawyer judge you know they the this is they can't win in other ways so they're trying desperately to basically find some alternative way to win after the fact and that's i mean that's isn't that exactly what the malax judge was doing up there basically i don't like those liberals in the metro area telling me what I can and cannot pass as far as laws. And so he goes out of his way without any justification whatsoever and issues a ruling that no one was going to back up. No one was going to back up. So, and here you got this in Rochester, what the Hail Mary here is, please, please, please let me get a judge who's not going to look at this, not going to look at the fact that, I mean, clearly the school district, Rochester Public Schools, says, well, we asked legal counsel, is this the way you write the question? And they said, yes, so we're off with it. The, um, you know, I, I'm 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 going to guess he's hoping that the, the judge doesn't look into that at all, doesn't do anything, just, you know, puts a hold on because I've got some questions. The reality is, is that, it, and this, by the way, this whole thing with this anti-referendum, we've talked about this before. This has been a thing that has happened out in rural America, in rural Minnesota, where these groups have come in, they're paid money to kill off referendums on schools. Now, we can talk about, and Rochester is not some of these rural school districts where these referendums have been you know, killed. Um, th- that's more smaller schools. And, and a lot of that, by the way, it's funny because it was funny. They had these referendums and all of a sudden the school started to close and the same people were like, that school district's never going to get my taxpayer dollars are all of a sudden saying, why did the school close? I have to drive 40 minutes one way to get my kid to school. Well, maybe you should have thought about that because uh, I guarantee you it probably is going to cost you a heck of a lot more in gas to drive to the nearest school district as opposed to have just done the referendum in the first place. But hey, sure, you got a win for America there, idiots. But that's kind of what they do. This this seems like a, a different version of it, but it's the same thing. I don't like it. I don't want it to happen. So they're hoping the judge steps in and stops it. You're going to have a lot of school referendums on the ballots. Can I make an argument for him? Vote for him across the board. Every school needs upgrades. And whether it's a new a, a, a new you know roof for the building, um, you know, new chairs for the classroom, new books for the students, whatever the case may be, new technology, we've got to get these schools back up to where they used to be before the Republicans under Tim Pawlenty gutted the schools and made them less than they were. 
So there are referendums out there. You want a good quality school. It's this is a no brainer. Pass the referendum because you know it's like I said. I actually know people where their school closed down and they they merged in with a different school district, and all of a sudden they're like Friday nights we used to go out to the football games. Now the football games are thirty minutes away. Didn't you work against the referendum against the school? Yeah, but I I mean I didn't want them to close. What do you think was going to happen, you idiots? You don't know about an issue and you kept, but yet you pipe in about it, then stop acting surprised when you succeed and you end up having consequences you didn't foresee. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. By the way, there is another state right now that currently is trying to determine whether Trump is going to be on the ballot, and that's in Colorado right now. And that trial is an absolute freaking hoot, by the way, because they keep calling all these people that, you know, and they are putting the idea of the insurrection on trial there. And they're bringing all these people that kept screaming about the election was stolen, and they're putting them on points like, by who? And they don't know. Take case in point. Activist Amy Kremer testified in Colorado court Thursday that supporters believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen, although she has no idea who did it on the second day. And she doesn't want to say anything because, you know, you're now under oath in a courtroom. If she was to say Joe Biden, then now that you have an act, you know, a, a suable action, you, you know, if you don't, you can't. Well, OK, let's let's just make sure we make the obvious. They don't have any proof of anyone stealing it. So if they're under oath, they can't say, oh, this person stole it because they don't have any evidence anyone stole it. And even if they did try to say, oh, Joe Biden did, now you're under oath. And yeah, that's going to come back and smack you pretty bad. On the second day of Donald Trump's 14th Amendment disqualification trial, the defense called Kremer, who helped plan the January 6th rally that would turn into an insurrection. Voters have sued to keep Trump off the ballot based on Civil War era clause in the Constitution. At one point, a lawyer representing the voters asked Kremer, why she called the 2020 election a coup. Uh, get ready for some tap dancing. <laughs> I was talking about metaphorically. They stole an election. So metaphorically, they were talking about the sitting of president. So who stole the election exactly? The attorney pressed. We don't know who stole the election. <laughs> Kramer admitted. I mean, it happened in a number of states. We don't know. Shadowy figures, the lawyer suggested. I can't speak to that, the witness replied. We don't know. Kramer then asked if she knew how the election was stolen. I mean, there is a number of things that happened with the election that were inconsistent, officials breaking laws. And it would be, you know, different states have different laws. I'm not an expert in these state laws, she added. So it's not going well for them because basically this is now all of a sudden it's, they have to prove all these lies that they've been saying for a while now are true, and they just can't do that. Uh, I also would, if I can... Oh, this just this just came across. Trump is basically out there. He's upset. I I've I love Republicans because the the hypocrisy knows no end. The same political the same people who will look at you and they will say a twelve year old should be charged as an adult and jailed for the rest of their lives. They knew exactly what they were doing when it's a twelve year old black child who's committed a crime. That's 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 a lifetime sentence. They knew what they were doing. When it's 
40, 50-year-old grown adults who are the executive vice presidents of companies. How dare you persecute those children? Those children! <laughs> oh, Donald Trump has responded to a watching his children getting grilled in court. Eric Trump, dare, and Donald Trump Jr. gave back-to-back testimonies in their father's business trial today. As a trustee, I have an obligation to listen to those who are expert, who have expertise in these things. Eric Trump, who is Donald Trump's second son, also denied involvement, testifying he never had anything to do with the statement of financial condition. Actually, he did. You're the executive vice president. In a post to Truth Socialist Thursday, the former president reacted to testimony of his sons. So sad to see my sons being persecuted in a political witch hunt by this out-of-control, publicly-sealing New York State judge on a case that should have never been brought. Legal scholars scream disgrace. Which legal scholars scream disgrace? My dollar sign worth is far greater than on financial statements, plus they contain a full disclosure clause telling readers to... this. <laughs> <laughs> he can't even get away from it. Uh, he he. This is Trump. My my dollar's worth is a far greater than on financial statements. Plus, they contain a full disclaimer clause telling readers that this information to do their own due diligence and analysis. Trump continued, "Hey, th- we put in there. I'm lying my butt off. I don't know why they think that I I should be honest. We were just lying, lying. It's on them. I mean, we told them we were liars." Trump also went on. Also, the star witness admitted on the stand that he lied. A big story not covered by the press. Banks and insurance companies have made money, not even a minor default. Actually, no, the banks have lost a ton off of you. Uh, no victims except the people getting mugged and murdered in the sidewalks of New York while a corrupt attorney general sits in a, on a blank in court all day watching the Trump family be abused by a Trump-hating judge that said a billion-dollar house is only worth $18 million, Trump's post added. No, it's it's only worth $18 million. You know, judging from Stormy Daniels' description of things, you have a big problem with overinflating certain things there, Mr. President Trump, jackass. You do. You have a, a real big issue there. So that wasn't even I just saw that come up. I had to I had to dive into that. I was going to mention Tommy Tuberville, the stupidest man who's ever been elected to a federal office. In my lifetime, Tommy Tuberville is an absolute moron. Um, the senator has got a hold on all military promotions right now until the White House removes its laws, basically allowing service members to get abortions as health care, no matter where they're at. And Tumberville is refusing. Now even his own Republican Party apparently had a moment with him to which they was, you know, uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of done with him. Now, once again, it is my belief that Tommy Tuberville is not just doing this because of abortion. He's doing this because after General Miley, we had we saw exactly what happened is that thanks to the general, we did not have a full-fledged insurrection in this country in an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States of America. We did not have that. What we had was a military that refused to go out there and start firing on civilians just to put Donald Trump back into office. And God bless him, you know, it's, it's leaders like him that saved the country. It's my belief Tommy Tuberville wants to make sure all those leaders are removed 
and leaders who are loyal to Trump uber allis are installed in the leadership positions so that when they try this insurrection crap again, they basically will have the military saying, tell us where to go start shooting on our own civilians. I'm of, I, 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 I 100% believe that. Regardless, even his own Republican senators, Jody Ernst, uh, Lindsey Graham, Rit Romney, all of them were just taking him to task yesterday just because they would they would read the bios of these people and saying we need these people in position and he just say nope 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 and yeah tommy tuberville and first of all don't fool yourself tommy tuberville is an idiot i mean seriously think the stupidest person you ever you've ever met in your life the guy that would you know i'll eat that for a dollar that's tommy tuberville he really is that stupid and he's a senator because football I just I bring this up because as a veteran myself, I'm just infuriated at where things have gone there. I'm just it's 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 he is purposely with intent hurting the military and their readiness and their preparedness. And frankly, I think this is part of a, a as Stephanie Miller said a few weeks ago when she was on the show, a slow moving coup. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Let's take a break. Come on back when we do return. Linda Lagarde Grover is going to join us. A song over Misquaw Rapids is her latest novel. We'll talk to her about that in just a moment. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM nine fifty. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Linda Lagarde Grover is kind enough to join us. Uh, novels, the, the Road Back to Sweetgrass, The Night of Memory. Uh, they came after her debut to- story collection, the, da- the Dance Boots. And uh, she's also written a poetry collection, The Sky Watched, and a book uh, blending memoir history and Ojibwe tradition as well. She's a professor emerita at American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth and a member of the Boys Fort Band of Ojibwe. Her latest book, A Song Over Misqua Rapids, is out right now, a novel. Uh, Linda Lagarde Grover is kind enough to join us to talk about the book. Hi, Linda. How are you? Well, hi, Matt. I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Well, thank you for being here. And by the way, just FYI, I have been on your fine campus quite a bit lately. My daughter is a freshman up there this year. And so, yeah, and she's, and she's, she is taking a Native American studies class this term and she, she's talked about how much she's enjoyed uh, learning it. I don't know if she's taking it with you, but uh, I think that that is, I, I'm really glad these studies, as she has said, it's like, how come we never heard of any of this in high school? That's what I don't oh, yeah, yeah, how come indeed? Well, I'll be teaching next semester, not this semester. So next semester I'll be teaching the art class. And so the wow. Native art class, so maybe she'll be in that one. Well, I'll, well, I'll give her a hint. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, when, when we talk about novels, I'm, I'm, I want to get into this. This is the, uh, the third novel to touch on an imaginary uh, Ojibwe reservation. And I'm going to hopefully say it's Mose Point. Is I said correct? Moje. Moje Point. Moje. Moje Point. Uh, this is the site you've had in, well, it's, it's in the two novels, but as well, it's something that apparently... Uh, showed up in your original debut story collection, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is also in the dance boots. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a real reservation. It's in northern Minnesota, mostly northeastern Minnesota. It's, uh, we, we don't know exactly where it is, but we know it's up, up near, near the Iron Range somewhere. It's um, very much like Boys Fort 
and it's also very much like the Fond du Lac Reservation just outside of Duluth and the Grand Portage that's up near Canada up the North Shore. But it's it's imaginary. Well, well it, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking the Net Lake Indiv- uh, Reservation up there as well. It's, uh, that's up uh, uh, by Pelican. And, and so- yes, it is. So Net Lake and Boys Fort. Net Lake and Boys Fort and Vermilion. Um, I, they're kind of interchangeable, but Boys Fort is the name of the band, and then Net Lake and Vermilion are uh, locations. Okay. The mm-hmm. when let me ask you this: Did where did the location? Did did you start as a writer, a creative writer? Where did the, the this whole this whole scene come to mind? How did you start building that within your story process? Well, I was writing poetry when I was working on my dissertation quite a while ago, I guess. And then um, that kind of got interwoven with the research I was doing, um, interview projects about people who had attended American Indian boarding schools. And my family was a boarding school family, and we have a pretty pretty extensive history there. And when I got done with my dissertation, um, actually Tom Peacock, who was the chair of my committee, asked if I had ever written fiction, and and I hadn't. <laughs> but I thought, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll do that. So that was where I began, and I found actually that, you know, it's all about stories anyway. And recounting history, for me, I I found that fiction was a a way to do it that kind of kept a little bit of a distance between real event, real people, and um, and it just uh, it gave it gave me. Um, in telling the story, I think a, a freedom to do some things and to also, you know, stay, stay, take good care. Wewene is the word, you know, carefully, carefully in sharing our histories in current ways. Whenever I talk to a, a writer uh, that's writing fiction, I always enjoy it because it's, you know, it, there, there's and just in the same way, so the amount of way people approach painting a picture. There's a thousand different ways to go in there, and it's always interesting to hear from the artist about how they see this sort of thing. Same thing for writers. Because, you know, it is interesting that I, there are writers I've talked with where they create the scene, they create the place, they create the, the town, the, the reservation, and that's where they start with. Sometimes it creates the people, and then they write around that. And I think that it, it, it sometimes is a challenge. But if I've always found with writers, they always have, when it comes to writing novels, and the fact that you, this is your third you know, it, it shows you that you once you get that base foundation, you you know, you know, you've tied the boat to the dock per se. You know, it becomes easier to uh, to be able to write the characters and flush out the story even better because you've you've got your nice foundation. There is the foundation, and I think that the the characters and the stories kind of um, they emerge. So I I don't really have a whole lot of um, power over over these things. They they just kind of I write and they happen as I write. Actually my um my stories, um, a lot of them well, I mean a young woman just kind of happened when I was I would I watch T V sometimes mm-hmm. when I write and watching the news and um and um on my laptop as I was typing this young woman it's like she stepped into the room and so um things kind of went from there. And she figures pretty strongly in this most recent um, novel. This is my fourth book of fiction, and I, I think she's been in three of them. But the di- the difference is on this one is um, in previous works she was a very young girl um, trying to find her way in the world. In another, she was a middle aged lady trying to 
cope with the world. And now in this one, she is an elder. And she is still trying to cope with changes and maintaining maintaining the good ways. And it's really tied into the land and the terrain to um, to retain the... Um, you know, all that the land gives us, but we have our obligations, too, to care for it. And that's what she's trying to do. She's not the main character here, but she's very, figures very heavily. There are, two, you know, a couple, st- several stories that interweave in this one. But the theme of the land and the and the land and the terrain, I mean, the animals and birds, everybody who lives on it, that that's an entity in itself in this book. Mm-hmm. Much as I enjoy Margie and what she's doing here as an as an elder and, and margie robino is that that's the character correct that that you're referring to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is 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 it i mean obviously and i've talked to once again i've talked to a lot of writers about this there's got to be a bit of fun in living a life through an a character as you said you started off with a younger version of a margie and now here you know the character is older you know, but what you just presented when you said all of a sudden, you know, Margie was in the room with you and that was that character there. It, it, that must be like flowing water. It just, it, it, it sounds like that character herself just really manifested itself and has, has been able to make make writing the rest of the book easy. Is that a fair way to say it? Well, yeah, I guess, um, you know, it's it's not easy so much as it is fun. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, forgive me. Yes, writing a book is not easy. I've always, I've always, it's, it's very complicated, yes. But it's fun. It's more fun than what? Chocolate cake, I guess. It's, wow. It's, <laughs> <laughs> now, now we're, now we're writing some checks. Okay. <laughs> well, and you know, there is the other world figures into this book too. Yes. There are, you know, Margie is a very young woman, you know, interacted with people who are no longer you know, on the living side of things. And so the spirit world exists here at the same time that we're here, while at, while at the same time these people are in the next world. So it's a leap of faith kind of thing. And so there's, a, there's a, several of the women who are, you know, Iban, they are no longer uh, living in the body, but they are here um, commenting and trying to um, perhaps sometimes influencing how things how things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted one thing I do want to mention a few times here. Uh, you're going to be celebrating the publication of a song over Miskwell Rapids. Uh, you're going to be at Birch Bark Books and their new downtown Minneapolis event space. This is at sixteen twenty nine Hennepin Avenue. Uh, number twenty, room twenty uh, two seventy five. This is going to be on Wednesday, November fifteenth, at seven p.m. And I'll make sure I link. I imagine uh, University of Minnesota Press is going to have that linked. I'll make sure I link that out there for everyone that wants to go and see oh, the yeah. uh, by all means coming up here. Um, one of the things I've learned to do. I'm going to allow you to take the stage here because I don't like surmising fiction. Sometimes people want me to talk a lot about what the plot is. Sometimes people don't want to talk about it at all. So if I may, why don't you give a, just what as much as you're comfortable a synopsis a little bit of the uh, a song for Miss uh, a song over Miss Rapids. Well, the robins are waking at dawn or even before dawn, and they're looking down at Moje Point and you know the lands of sweetgrass which is uh, Margie Robineau's family's land allotment, held for many, many decades. And the robins then are watching what's going on, and, the, um, and life begins to happen as, as the sun comes up. 
there's going there's a there's kind of a conflict coming up over the land and who will be on the land and who you know it gives you me thought to who has who has the right to be on the land and what does the land think of all this and the ancestors and so in margie in trying to maintain and and preserve things has a story that is linked with a good friend of hers dale ann who has a story from the past that is um all of a sudden um coming to the surface and I, I was talking to a friend of mine lately. I said, you know those stories that you hope won't come to the surface when you're in your 70s? <laughs> and we, we both were laughing. But, but, you know, the thing is, things that must be dealt with, too. And what, what does it all mean? We, we never know. But we know that there, um, that there is um, a life on the other side here that, is, um, that was there corp- in a corporal way before and is still with us spiritually. So what what is going to happen with Dale Ann trying to um, trying to keep her life in good order when this when this event is coming back up and there's a mystery there and what will happen and how does that tie into Margie Robineau and you know her her longtime uh, crush I think on a on a man in, a man at uh, Moje who um, just simply a nice man, but just simply doesn't love her back in that same way over a lifetime. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, perfect. By the way, perfect there. And I mean, I like how you alluded to the conflict. I'm not going to say another thing, uh, but I mean, it, 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 it's a, it's a great story idea, uh, you know? And, and so, I mean, what I want to ask you, because as I mentioned with my daughter, I mean, you know, here she is, you know, she comes out of Hopkins High School. She goes to UMD. She's like, wow, I wish we had some Native American studies in our, our high school days. You, When you write a story uh, that is obviously the characters and the, the locale are uh, you're basically centered around Native American community and Native American characters, it, it must be difficult but also invigorating because you're able to present a, a piece of America – that we most people just don't see the Native American, the life of the Native Americans on the reservations. So you have this ability to present this to the people, but obviously, I imagine for yourself, it's 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 a little bit intimidating because you want to make sure that you present the the Native American scene and culture correctly, and and you know, in in, in as in much of a traditional light as possible. Is that is that a fair way to say it? Well, we certainly have our obligations as Native people to. Um, to be, you know, always very conscious of and respectful of, you know, what what it means for us having, we're, we're really lucky because we're here today, and many of the people in the generations before us had such difficult times, and some survived and some didn't, but in, but, you know, the, the great meaning is that to, to honor them and to honor this life, you know, we certainly want to we want to do, you know, do things properly and in a way that would honor them and that they, you know, hopefully would like. And so I just, you know, I, I, I write stuff and then I go back and read it again and again and, you know, make some little changes and curly cues. And, you know, and I keep my, I keep my own um, ancestors in mind, I guess. You know, my aunts and uncles, my grandmothers, grandfathers, my dad. I keep that in mind. And, you know, my my dad, you know, paid me a great compliment once. And he's, you know, he's not among the living anymore either. But he was reading something and he said, you you know, you really, you really write like, like an Indian would talk. And, I mean, that was just 
I mean, that just meant so much to me that he would that he would say that and to be encouraging to me in that way. And and it's it's wonderful because I mean there's and I think that you know in with with white culture there's a tendency of thinking things of satellites and they're not you know kind of this but native stories are human stories and you know people I mean, the the reality is is that people can get a lot from these stories that that just because you're presenting it there and showing that you know that no matter where you're at these human feelings are there these you know and they might be different but they're there and I think that that making it relatable is one great way and I've been very happy with the University of Minnesota Press I got to tell you the truth uh, they have yeah. been the last few years they have been putting out a lot of great native american books and I think that with with the 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 in the the now you know interest in native american art native american literature I think we're starting to see some changes albeit slow to making sure that the the native history and the native stories are part of all stories but I, I think that that's one of the great things about books like this is that it, it basically it, it just these are all human stories. There's just different perspectives, and I think that's an important thing to keep in there. Oh yes, universal themes that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a you know a, a love of each other. Um, we're all walking around here on this planet. You know, yeah. There there are universal things, and and you know our stories. You know, our our sacred stories and our historical stuff. I mean, this is all present and and alive really and you know whether whether it is um uh whether it is seen and acknowledged by you know outside of indian country doesn't doesn't change the the reality of it and you know i'm i'm very very appreciative of the university of minnesota press for for all the many things that they've that they've been publishing and you know some of the stuff like from well from stacy droulard up in grand portage um some of the beautiful things she's done i mean i think it's just wonderful that it's it's out there for a for a, a very broad group of readers and you know it's a it's a it's a keeping and honoring of history and then a sharing of history yes. and contemporary culture in an in an appropriate way yeah I, i'm congratulations on this i'm going to ask are there other novels in the works at this point Oh, I'm always working on something. I I have bits and pieces of things all the time, and then when they, um, then when I when I see that there's something that might fit together, then I try to create a coherent story out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, once again, if you would like to meet Linda, you can. Uh, this is going to be once again uh, over at Birch Park Books, their new downtown Minneapolis event space, 1629 Hennepin Avenue, number 275. This is going to be on Wednesday, November 15th uh, at 7 p.m. So you can go catch her over there. Go pick up the book, A Song Over Misquil Rapids. Linda Lagarde Grover is the book there. And then, of course, also I want to make sure you mention uh, The Road Back to Sweetgrass and In the Night of Memory, both of those books as well, uh, part of the, these novels. So go get all three of them and, and enjoy them and then go meet her. That's a, a really cool way to do it too. Uh, Linda, thank you very much. I, I, I'm going to pressure my daughter to take this class, the Native American art class next term. Hopefully she does. Hopefully she can, she can get in there. But uh, just absolute pleasure chatting with you. When your next book comes out, you're more than welcome. Please come on back. Oh, goodness, I'd love to. Thank you very much, Matt. It was great talking with you. Miigwech. Thank you very much. Linda Lagrard Grover is kind enough once again to join us. A song over Misquil Rapids. We'll take a break, wrap up the show when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show on AM 950. Am I 
950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Linda Lagarde Grover. Go check out her books. Fantastic. And I do give credit to the University of Minnesota Press. They have really, there, there. it is, from the time I started doing interviews with authors on this show to today, they are putting out a lot more Native American product. And I think that it, it's, it's I, I say that under this argument, it's from Native American people, writers, culture, talking about that, but it's for everyone. And I think that that is a very important step is that it's, it's, it's just a good book. It's, it's, it, yes, it is a great Native American book, but it's a good book and everyone should go check that out. So please do. Uh, good news. The guy who walked away from prison has been caught. Go team, go. Convicted rapist who escaped from a county jail in southern Minnesota was captured in a field following a late chase Wednesday, uh, just a few miles outside of town. Le- uh, Leonardo Lopez Jr., 36, fled from the Watawan County Jail in St. James shortly before 7 p.m. on Monday as he was being transferred from one area to the another area of the jail. What is it, an outdoor jail? <laughs> is it like a detached garage? How wait a second, how is he not locked up the entire time? You just go by the pool area there uh, towards the back of it that way. St. James police and sheriff deputies tracked down Lopez in a pickup truck about six miles north of town on 710th Avenue near Highway 30, said Chief uh, Sheriff's Deputy Mark Slater. The pickup was stopped. Lopez ran into a nearby field but was soon apprehended without further incident. Two men in the pickup, aged 36 and 52, were arrested on suspicion of aiding and abetting Lopez's effort to remain free. Wow, they did a great job of that, didn't they? The chief deputy said two more people, a 20-year-old woman and a 19-year-old man, were also arrested for their alleged roles in aiding Lopez. All four remain jailed, awaiting charges. The Star Tribune does not uh, identify suspects before they are charged. Court records show that Lopez was arrested and jailed in early August because he failed to report a new address to the state-registered predatory sex offender. In 2006, an 18-year-old Lopez was convicted in Wadawan County on third-degree criminal sexual conduct. His criminal history in Minnesota also includes convictions on domestic abuse, burglary, and fleeing police. Well, he still, well, fleeing police or running from police. I, I don't, fleeing, you got, you're getting caught. Uh, that's going to be the case. So, good news, they have um, captured him. Again, maybe they'll basically decide to not let him just go roam free in the fields next to the uh, prison. But, hey, that's just me. One last thing before we leave, the third section three of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elected president or vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer in the United States or as a member of the state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to enemies thereof but Congress may vote two-thirds of each house to remove such a disability. Donald Trump, under the definition of Section 3, 14th Amendment, is guilty of insurrection. He should not be on these ballots if a state chooses to remove him. That, that's a fact. Uh, Native Roots Radio up next. We're back tomorrow. Until then, see ya.